The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. Can you watch or read the news these days without thinking something's got to change? I mean, school shooting in Michigan, officers shot in Clayton County, something's got to change. I, Omicron variants, supply chain disruptions, pandemics and politics, something's got to change. I, you know, I see powerful people who use their position to abuse. I see lowly people who feel like they're never going to get a step up. You see neighborhoods blighted by decay. You see individuals who are broken and alone. You see a world that seems to be getting worse day after day. Something's got to change. So what's the solution? How, how do we go about changing this world that seems to be getting worse and worse? How do we go about making a change in this world? Do you think uh, we could go about changing the world by relying on government? Right? If we could just get the right laws passed, or the right programs in place, or the right processes begun, do you think that would change the world? I mean, if you could just get the right candidate elected to whatever office you're talking about, do you think that would, do you think that would do it? I personally have my doubts since we've had government around as long as the world has had problems. I, I really don't think government is the way to solve the problems of this world. Well, so then what's the solution? If something's got to change, what, what do we do? I mean, is it that maybe we need to work on increasing the level of morality in the public square. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if people again respected office or respected marriage or respected, you know, whatever thing you're talking about in the public lot, to have people living a moral life again in the public square? That would be a good thing. But do you think that's the solution? Do you think all we need is a couple more Ten Commandment monuments put up here and there and that's going to... That's going to change the world? I have my doubts. Here's the thing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight for just laws or we shouldn't seek to have more public morality, but I just don't know that those are solutions that they're going to change the world. Maybe you're tempted to go the opposite direction. Withdraw from the public square. You could go ahead and dig your bunker and start stockpiling water and canned goods and wait for the inevitable coming apocalyptic uprisings that you'll be prepared for. Nobody else will. Do you think that's a solution? I mean, I'm as much of a fan of spam as the next guy, but you really want to eat that in your basement for the next 20 or 30 years? You know, here's the thing. Whether we like it or not, the, uh, changing the world isn't going to come through government. It's not going to come through trying to put morality back in a highlighted spot in the public square. It certainly isn't going to get solved by us withdrawing from life in this world. People have tried it. It doesn't work. But here's why. First of all, because the world isn't actually getting worse and worse. 
I know every generation you get old enough, you look back fondly at an earlier time and you say, see how bad the world has gotten? I remember back in these days when it was so good. You've said it, your parents before you've said it, their parents before them said it. Now I'm looking back at the 80s, you know, with like 8-bit video games going, those were the good days, <laughs> right? Those were the days, right? Here's the deal. Every generation when it gets old enough, it's not that the world's gotten worse, it's that you've seen more of it. You've seen more of the broken nature of life in this world. Because the thing is, the world isn't getting worse and worse. What the world is simply doing is living up to its character that it's had. And that's this. It's a world that is corrupted by sin, it's morally bankrupt, and it's doomed for destruction. God says those three things about this world. Not that it's getting worse. It's just living up to what it is. But I have some really important news for you today. The world, as you know it, is about to change. Not because of a government program, not because of push for morality in the public square, but this world is going to turn upside down. Because you see, God's got a plan to actually do something about all the broken parts of this life that you and I have to live with. All those headlines we see that we shake our head and say, man, something's got to change. God has a plan to fix it, to address every single one. And that plan, that plan gets its start on the day when the Son of God entered the human race. Okay, this coming Wednesday for a midweek dinner and devotion, we're going to be talking about the day when the angel Gabriel appeared to a virgin named Mary and told her that she was going to be the mother of the Son of God. And, and later, Mary sang a song of praise to God for what was happening. Uh, we call it the Magnificat. That's just because if you read it in Latin, the first line is Magnificat anima mea. My soul proclaims or magnifies the name of the Lord. But this Magnificat, what's interesting about it is when Mary's giving praise to God for what's happening, through the Spirit, she recognizes that this is the beginning of God's plan to change the world, to turn the world upside down. She sings about God pulling down rulers from their thrones and lifting up the lowly. She sings about God humbling the proud, but comforting the poor in spirit. You see, God's plan to change this world would begin on the day that the Son of God became human. Because that was part and parcel of God's plan to remake this world in his image, to restore it to the perfection with which he made it. So you know what? If you look at the news or you read it on your phone and you're thinking to yourself, man, something's got to change in this world, you're absolutely right. And God's got a plan to do exactly what you're asking. But when you see it and you hear it, it might not exactly be the plan that you would have picked. But i tell you what, it's a plan that perfectly reflects God's love for working through apparent weakness. Let's set the context here. Um, God's plan to change the world was going to start with the least likely of persons in the least likely of places. And so God used to speak to his Old Testament people through prophets, right? A prophet would come, God would send them, and they would say, this is what the Lord says. But the last prophet to speak to God's people was the prophet Malachi, last book in the Old Testament for a reason. Um, after Malachi, God stopped speaking through prophets. The word of the Lord didn't come to anyone for 400 years. For four centuries, God's people were waiting 
for the word of God to come back, a testimony. And so the last thing they had heard from God were the words of Malachi who said this, I will send my messenger to prepare the way before me, then the Lord will come to his temple. So through Malachi, God said, look for the messenger who prepares the way, and then the Messiah will be there. Then 400 years of silence. So God's people knew that the world-changing event of the Messiah showing up was going to be preceded by someone who would come as a forerunner, someone who would prepare the world for the arrival of the Son of God and for the whole world to change, right? Now, if we were the selection committee, not college football, we could talk about that later, if we were the selection committee for the forerunner of the Son of God, in 26-27 A.D., there are probably some pretty good choices out there about who we might pick to say this person would have the great, the widest impact, the ability to uh, prepare the world for the coming of Christ. Right? Me, if I were on the selection committee, I would have suggested the first name on the list in the gospel for today, which was, was Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor. He ruled absolutely from one end of the civilized world to the other. He ruled from the eternal city, Rome, to which all roads led. Now think about this. If you could have picked Tiberius Caesar, and God could have appeared to him and said, Tiberius, you are going to be my special messenger. You're going to prepare the world for my son. Think of what Tiberius could have done. I mean, he had the vast resources of his entire empire at his disposal. He could have used their vast transportation system and communication system and their bureaucratic system and their military, their economic power to reach all across the world. I think he'd have been a great choice. The work of preparing for the Messiah would be done on an industrial scale. But God didn't pick Caesar. And you know what? He also didn't pick any of the other governors or tetrarchs that are in the list there too. Because it turns out God says the way to change the world is not gonna come through government. Whether you are a worldwide empire or whether you're a tetrarch, no, it's not gonna come from government. But there were other options. I mean, if we were the selection committee and God says, okay, you can pick anybody, but nobody from government. Okay, so maybe God wants us to pick someone from the church then, that seems a little more likely. Well, if you wanted to deal with the church, well, it was simple. You go to Jerusalem, to the temple. There you would find the sacrifices and the priesthood, and at the very pinnacle, you'd find one man, Annas, the high priest, the man who could enter into the most holy place once a year, only with blood, tip of the spear. Think of what Annas could have brought to this. I mean, if you unleashed the priesthood, in preparing God's people for the coming of the Messiah. If they would have uh, recruited in the Pharisees and every synagogue across the land was filled with people being prepared for the coming of the Messiah, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. But God didn't pick him either. Instead, God shows the least likely person in one of the least likely places. After 400 years of silence, Listen to what happened when the word of God came. Listen to who it skipped. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, 
his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. The first word from God in four centuries came to prepare the way for the Son of God to enter the human race, and it did not come to an emperor or to a governor or to a high priest. It came to a nobody out in the middle of nowhere. It came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. As far as plans to change the world, you and I might, might question this one a little bit. Our plans might have been very different than God's, but you know what? Here's the thing. Our plans are very much focused on this world, a world that is morally bankrupt, corrupt to the core, and doomed to destruction. So maybe there's a good reason that our plan and God's plan look so differently. And instead, God's plan was to work through what looked like weakness to, pick, to bring a message of great strength. All right, so... How did God use John to change the world? Well, God's way of changing the world begins not with the headlines, not with the great tragedies of life. That's not where he starts. He starts actually in a much more personal place. He starts in hearts. Listen. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So God's plan for changing the world starts with repentance and forgiveness. Because you see, you know what you can't do? You cannot legislate this world back into order. Doesn't work. You cannot life coach this world back into righteousness. No, it's too far gone. The only thing that could be done with this world is that it could be redeemed. It could be bought back from sin, death, and the devil. And the only thing, the only thing that could pay that purchase price was the lifeblood of the Son of God. And so the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert, and he preached a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. John says the Redeemer is coming. Now's the time for us to prepare, to make straight paths in our heart for him. John calls on us to prepare because, well, when Jesus comes, he wants to find hearts that are, in John's picture here, straight roads, level running. And I don't know about you, I, what do you see when you spend a few minutes examining your heart? You see all straight roads? Or is yours maybe a little bit more like mine? Uh, hearts that have all their own form of crookedness. I don't know, do you have a heart that thinks, uh, thinks you can toy with sin? Just a little? Do you have a heart that has tried to find happiness in all the wrong places? Do you have a heart, I mean, can you see how we can be so shameful one minute and self-righteous the next? Or how we can be so demanding that people treat us a certain way but so easily treat others so shabbily all around us? I mean, do we have a heart that spends so much time pointing at everything that's wrong in the headlines, but fails to see what's wrong right here, 
Something's got to change. You're right, but it's not just out there. It's here, too. John says, repent and prepare for the coming king. And looking at my heart, John could understand that that's not a small job. And the picture he uses isn't a small picture. He's talking about building a road where you level mountains and you raise up valleys. Could you imagine such a job? It'd be way bigger than any infrastructure bill that'll ever get passed in Congress, right? Government's not the solution. He's talking about leveling mountains and raising up valleys. It's a road construction project that would be absolutely impossible for us. But that's also his point. See, because you and I, we can't make our hearts ready for the coming king. But that's exactly why the king comes to us. Right? God doesn't say, hey, the king is coming, run over there and meet him. No, he said the king is coming to you. Because, see, that's exactly what we need. He comes to us, and through his spirit, he prepares us by working in our heart, repentance, and then you know what he promises? Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness for all the crooked parts of your life and your heart. And here's how God wants to start changing the world. He starts by changing your world, by giving you forgiveness, a release from your shame, a pardon from all of your guilt, a clean slate with God. Jesus comes to change your world by changing you from sinner to saint, from shameful to forgiven, from guilt to glory. And now he sets you free, sets you free to walk out of the prison of past sin, sets you free to sin no more, to take that forgiveness that God's lavished on you and let it shine out from your heart on everyone around you. Hearts that are prepared for the Lord are hearts that are, are expressing themselves in Christian love to the people around them, that are fulfilling their roles and their vocations that God's given them, that are not focused on ourselves, but are the people God's given us to love. Because here's the thing. Through your changed heart, God says that's the first step in changing this whole world. Because what John said is all mankind is going to see God's salvation. All mankind. Right now, you and I and everyone who believes in Jesus as Savior, we see Jesus as the Savior of the world. We see God's salvation. But the truth is that in this world that needs change so badly, there will be people, when Jesus comes, who will see that Jesus is Savior, but they would not be receiving him in glory. So Jesus calls on us today to repent, to be forgiven, and then let our light shine that we, through our changed hearts, might start changing this world by sharing a message of forgiveness with everyone who needs to hear it so that everyone we know will join with what John said and see mankind's salvation. I'll tell you what, if you look at the news and you think something's got to change, well, God agrees with you. When the Son of God entered into the human race, the world began to turn. Today we see it in faith. Very soon we will see it in fact because the kingdom of heaven is near and it's getting nearer every day. God grant it. Amen.